Michal Yongdun. I'm Michael, joined by Alex as always. How's it going? And this is Fallen Through Plotholes, a podcast about video game plot lines and how they have a tendency to go off the rails. Alex, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Good, 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 good. Yeah, I am incredibly tired because I have been immersing ourselves in, uh, or myself, I guess more accurately, in today's topic, which has been, I've read so many different ridiculous production notes and whatnot, <laughs> and watched an incredibly terrible movie in order to get ready to talk about today's topic, the uh, 1993 Super Mario Brothers film. Also, by the time that people do listen to this, I am technically going to be on a train and going to Minneapolis. You will. Indeed, yes. Going to Summer Games Done Quick. This is benefiting Medicine Sans Frontier, which I just completely butchered. Let's just say Doctors Without Borders. I'm, I'm, too, I'm too tired to try to do French right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we're trying to get these all recorded beforehand so we could have things to throw up there. So this is going to be kind of a tired yet also somehow frenetic set of episodes, which makes mm. me honestly kind of excited because those usually tend to be our best. Yeah, they do. I agree. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I I've wanted to do this for a while because by the time these episodes come up on uh, are posted, which should be on the thirtieth of May, it would have been roughly already uh, two days since the thirtieth anniversary of the Super Mario Brothers movie, the one released in nineteen ninety three. Uh, Alex, have you ever seen this movie? I have not. I only know of it by reputation. Mm-hmm. And by its place as the first of what I'm going to call five high-profile video game movie adaptations of the era, mm-hmm. uh, which in my mind is Mario, Street Fighter, Double Dragon, Mortal Kombat, and then Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, where they kind of were still trying to figure out how exactly to do a video game movie. Mm-hmm. And confusingly, the first Mortal Kombat movie is the one that came out the best. Yep, somehow. Yeah, somehow. Although there's been a lot of uh, critical re-examination of the Street Fighter one. I feel like The Legend of Chun-Li helped that a lot, where people went, oh, this could have been way worse than it was. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, it um, it turns out you could do a lot worse. Mm, yeah, turns mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then after that, it followed up with the second wave of, of uh, those video game movies where they started to actually become more coherent. You know, the Angelina mm-hmm. Jolie Tomb Raider and Final Fantasy to Spirits Within, a movie that is bad, but at least it's ambitiously bad, if nothing else. True, yes. Yeah, but this is going to be the first one that's going to kick things off. This is going to be the first big-budget Hollywood video game movie. And it is going to be such a colossal failure that... It's going to literally cause a company to completely change direction as far as how they handle their IPs. Uh, Something that we kind of went over already when we recorded the episode about the most recent and much more successful Super Mario Brothers movie. Mm -hmm. But we should go ahead and maybe jump on into this because who boy is the story of the development of this movie going to be kind of crazy. So that's what we're going to go over today. And in the next episode, we'll talk about the actual plot, which is somehow as absurd as the (laughs) (laughs) the actual development. Perhaps a reflection of it, if you will. I would assume so. Yeah. And you would assume correctly. So once again, Alex, this it has just been the 30th anniversary of the release of the Super Mario Brothers. First major Hollywood adaption of the video game franchise. It is a movie that, while it's built up quite a cult following in a decades since its release on May 28th, 1993, 
It is a legendary failure by all possible measurements. And I do really mean that. Every mm-hmm. possible way you examine this movie, it is a failure. <laughs> it is a failure in terms of raw box office numbers. Had a budget of roughly around $42 million and only made $38.9 million. One of those numbers is smaller than the other, as it turns out. Yep. It is a failure in terms of using its actors properly. Despite casting critically acclaimed actors such as Bob Hoskins and Dennis Hopper, it generated what could be described as best a confused and at worst drunken performance from them. <laughs> I wrote this actually before I rewatched the movie, and I think actually Bob Hoskins does a great job in this, but everyone mm. else still falls under mm. this. Uh, it uh, also failed to keep said actors safe on the film set on multiple occasions. It's, there's going to nearly be a body count. Ah, uh, yay. Which honestly is going to say something about how much is going to go into the development and what went wrong with this, that I honestly cut out most of it from the script. (laughs) (laughs) I will just say there are multiple stories of people getting electrocuted, including Bob Hoskins, twice. Huh. Yeah. It could not stick to a script or even a set of directors. Finally, it remarkably failed to advance cinema or video games in any meaningful fashion. Despite being the first real video game movie, it didn't achieve any real success. And even in failure, it did not convince anyone to say, stop making video game movies. The Street Fighter movie would literally come out the next year. And even its visual effects, touted as potentially game-changing for Hollywood, were immediately overshadowed by the likes of Jurassic Park, a movie released not two weeks later. Oof. Yeah, Oof. yeah, could you, could you imagine being the movie released two weeks before Jurassic Park? Yeah. Now, to be fair, everything released in the vicinity of Jurassic Park was made to look foolish. Mm-hmm. But yeah, given how much went into this one, that's very unfortunate. Very, very unfortunate. Finally, Alex, it's not even the most successful Mario movie ever. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Literally, the most recent Mario movie is now currently sitting at one, uh, $1,220,000,000. <laughs> that is an insane number. It is an insane number. Its total worldwide gross is technically less than Frozen, but its domestic gross is actually more than Frozen. It's the most successful U.S. movie, uh, animated movie ever. Wow. Yeah, right? So the only reason anyone remembers this movie now is it's a bonkers movie with somehow just as ridiculous production and filming. And that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about a movie that's going to basically do everything wrong from the get-go. It's going to ruin careers, leave his production crew and talent incredibly jaded, like he just got back from Vietnam or something. (laughs) And literally it's going to lead to a few people being just straight up blacklisted. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. But before we get into the nuts and bolts of how this movie was made, we have to establish the circumstances that allowed this to happen. To start, we're going to have to talk about Nintendo and the Super Mario Bros. video games. And by that, I mean, I'm going to be very brief about this because I feel like of all the topics that we've ever covered on this podcast, I think people understand what Super Mario Brothers is. Right. Now, I'm still going to be going over it to a little bit, but it's going to be very, very brief. Mm-hmm. Now, Super Mario at this point is maybe the one game series that has transcended video games. Uh, if not now, then certainly a long time ago. A fact that once again is backed up by the most recent Super Mario movie grossing over $1.2 billion. So, Super Mario is a franchise created by my Nintendo, with his first game technically coming out in 1983 with the arcade release Mario Brothers. However, its main character, Mario, got a start with the 1981 uh, hit Donkey Kong, albeit he was known as Jumpman at the time. And the series from then on continued to produce mega hit after mega hit, 
starting with the system seller and arguably most influential game of all time, Super Mario Bros. for the Nintendo Entertainment System in 1985. And by the time 1993 rolls around, there's already going to be multiple incredibly successful and influential sequels, with Super Mario World having come out two years prior in 1991. And by some measure, the character of Mario by this point in time, 1993, was more recognizable than the Disney character Mickey Mouse. The success obviously was great for Nintendo. The then still kind of small, but also not really small, Japanese entertainment company that in some ways was still trying to figure out the whole video game thing or at least in the same way that every video game company, and just really the consumer audience at large, was trying to figure out. Mm -hmm. Now, we kind of went over this in when we talked about the uh, other Super Mario movie, so I'm not going to belabor this too much. But basically, Nintendo treated their IPs much differently than they do now, whereas they rigorously guarded it now. They had no idea what exactly they should even be doing with it in the first place, besides making more video games. So they were free and happy to license them out to whomever really wanted to and was willing to give them enough money to do so. Mm. Something that this movie is going to horrifically change, as we will <laughs> find out. So this is where we get to the first big person we need to talk about. And it's not anybody at Nintendo, but rather a British fil film producer, Roland Joffe. Alex, I'm going to take a guess you probably haven't heard of Joffe at all. Don't think so. So, not surprised by that, because he has fallen off the map since the mid-90s or so. Mm. But I'm going to guess you probably have at least heard of some of his movies, and we'll, we'll get to them in a second. But to talk okay. about him properly, uh, before he got into being a producer, he was a film director. Uh, specifically, a TV and film director getting his start with the British Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, an interesting job that he got, uh, more or less in spite of himself... And by that, I mean because he was technically on a blacklist uh, because he was associated with the Trotskyist Workers' Revolution Party, a communist party offshoot. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. He literally was on uh, what was the um, MI5's Christmas tree list, which was basically like the government saying, we need to keep an eye on these people. <laughs> right, right. Okay. Now, regardless, he had a few people who like really stuck up for him, and he ended up getting a job at the BBC, and uh, they ended up putting together a couple of uh, couple of programs that were very successful for, for the BBC at the time. This is back in the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. Now, this work eventually got him the attention of producer David Putnam. Now, Putnam was trying to find a director for an upcoming movie about the Khmer Rouge. Now, the Khmer Rouge, if you don't remember who they are, they are the murderous communist regime that was once in charge of Cambodia. That was uh, so evil that they perpetuated the Cambodia genocide and actually upset their neighbors Vietnam so much that they literally invaded another communist country just to get rid of them. Fun. Fun people. Very fun people. So naturally, any movie about them is going to be a laugh riot. Mm-hmm. Yep. So Joffe got interviewed for the job, and basically Putnam found him very, very impressed. And despite some potentially big-name directors being attached to the project, he was the one given the job. So while unproven, uh, Joffe's going to do a great job with this. And this movie... Mm and probably the one you may have heard of, The Killing Fields, would come out in 1984, and it's considered to be one of the greatest movies ever made. Hmm. There's quite a few parodies of it throughout the 80s and 90s and like TV sitcoms and whatnot. I think The Simpsons right. did one at one mm -hmm. point. Uh, and it's because, yeah, people really have heard, really loved this movie back in, back in the day. It was considered a very gripping drama. Now, this movie was nominated at the 57th Academy Awards for best, both Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actor. 
Uh, ended up losing in all of those to the movie Amadeus, a movie that ah. slightly slanders a dead Italian composer. <laughs> Just slightly. Just slightly. But this still immediately made Jothy one of the hottest names in Hollywood. And he's going to follow up this success with the 1986 movie The Mission, uh, the Robert De Niro starring mm. movie about Jesuit priests helping to lead a revolution against Spanish and Portuguese colonizers in South America. Right. I've heard of that one. Yeah, that's an, another very successful movie for him, at least in terms of critical reception. Financially mm-hmm. unsuccessful, but it still resulted in multiple nominations at the Academy Awards for Best Picture and Best Director. Though this time, he ended up losing out to the movie Platoon. Mm. So yeah, right away, Jothy has directed with his first two movies, uh, two incredibly uh, good movies that have got him nominations for Best Director. And while his next two movies, Fat Man and Little Boy, and City of Joy are going to be commercial and critical failures, uh, he's still going to be an up-and-coming name in Hollywood by the early 90s. Mm. And it's with this success, he decides, hey, what if I produced movies instead? This is going to be a bad idea for him. Yeah, that's, like, I guess I can see the logic, but that's a weird leap to be like, what if I just handled the money? Mm. I think it's more like he wanted to have total control. Right. Because as we're going to go through this, Joffy's going to come off as a bit of a control freak. Mm. So I think this is where he's coming from. If he can control the money, then nobody can question him when he, say, directs an adapt an adaption of the Scarlet Letter. That's absolutely terrible. Ooh. Yeah. So I think yeah. that's the reason why he goes with this move. I see. So he teams up with a fellow producer, uh, Jake Ebert, who was best known at the time for producing the movie Chariots of Fire. Okay. Uh, to form the company Light Motive. Now, this company is almost immediately going to get off on the wrong foot when it's used to produce what was at the time Roland Jothy's latest film, City of Joy, a pretty considerable financial failure to the tune of about $14 million or so. <laughs> Oof. Yeah, which is going to be a reoccurring theme over the short lifespan of this company. They're not going to make a single profitable film. Uh... <laughs> Still, sometimes you have to stumble before you actually succeed. And Jothy identified what was going to be their next project after City of Joy. Something that had no chance of failing. A movie based off the Super Mario series. Which, yeah, makes sense, right? Sure, I guess. I'm really curious what his initial plan with this was. Like, in terms of what this movie was supposed to be? or Yeah. Oh, like, okay, I'll get that. Yeah, because like, okay, you, you just tried to make this movie it didn't do well so your next move is to pick like licensing something popular makes sense mm-hmm. but no one has ever tried to make a movie about a video game before no they have not and so what what's the plan yeah and also it's a video game series that appeals to children yeah that is going to be produced by the person who directed the killing fields <laughs> And so one that by design has a very limited plot and mm-hmm. like depth at, to act as just like an easy onboarding. Like, do you know anything about Mario? No? Well, here's this one. Who cares? <laughs> you know, funny, that's going to be a reoccurring theme with everyone involved in this project of like, we don't mm. really know anything about Mario, but here we are. Yeah. Yeah, it's... yeah. G- that's something we're going to get into a little bit later, but yeah, the Super Mario series at this point is kind of slight when it comes to concepts and plot, other than basically what you see on the screen of the video game A little screen. bit. So yeah, like, adapting this to anything is going to be both a blessing and a curse because of that. Mm-hmm. So, 
The origins of this idea, though, goes back to 1990. And while we don't know when exactly Joffe decided to make his pitch, we do, know, we do know it was most likely after the release of Super Mario Bros. 3, a game that had been out in Japan for about a year and a half at this point and had mm -hmm. just come out in February 1990 in North America. Now, Alex, it's impossible to overstate just how massively successful this game was for Nintendo. Yes. It, not only critically, but commercially as well. Like, this game by mm -hmm. the end of 1990 is going to sell 8 million units, mm -hmm. which is a staggering amount at the time. Right. And it's going to generate over $500 million of revenue in the United States alone. Damn. Yeah, insanely successful. Uh, it served as a centerpiece for Nintendo's commercial-turned-movie The Wizard, and mm. cemented Mario's place as the most popular video game character of all time. Like, mm -hmm. huge, huge thing. Mm -hmm. Now, what I'm trying to say is that all this is is to set up the idea that making a Mario movie is perhaps the most obvious, no shit, this will be successful idea of all time. Right. And while the idea that Roland Joffe, a man who by this point was once again known for making brutal, gripping dramas about people dying, mm -hmm. was going to be the producer of the kiss-friendly Mario movie, I well, this is all kind of ridiculous, but it's not going to be the only ridiculous thing about this movie. Now, so since this is going to be such an obvious idea to make a Mario movie, a lot of companies were banging on Nintendo's door at the time uh, in order to get the rights to this. Some of them were offering up to $10 million for the rights to make a Mario movie. While J when Joffrey I decided to show up and make his pitch at Nintendo of America, uh, he decided to just kind of shoot his shot, even though he basically admitted he had zero money to offer. Ah. Uh. Yeah, which seems like a problem. Mm-hmm. So he, meet, he met with uh, Minero Arakawa, the uh, president of Nintendo America, and gave a presentation that comes off, that basically came off with a more or less a sense of bemusement from like Nintendo execs. Mm -hmm. Really just everyone involved, as this 2012 article from Wired notes. Quote, The filmmaker presented a pitch for the Super Mario Brothers movie with illustrations and a rough storyline. Arakawa was getting a lot of suitors, recalls Jaffe, but something tickled him about the personal presentation I made. We weren't a studio, and at one point, he said to me, you know, we have people offering us five, ten million to buy the rights. With a gulp, I said, we could probably run to 500,000. Just smiled a rather <laughs> monkish short of smile, amused and rather touched, end quote. <laughs> Which is a very, very Nintendo way of usually handling things. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you're very amusing. This is cute. Yeah, yes. <laughs> So now, this should have been the end of it, right? I mean, somebody's coming you would, in. You would think. Yeah. Somebody's coming in whose last movie that they produced basically just lost a ton of money. <laughs> it's here to be like, well, we got $500,000. How's that sound? Like, you'd think, you'd think they'd be laughed out the door. But apparently Nintendo was rather tickled by Joffe. And so next month, he was actually flown out to Japan, where they put him up a hotel and then literally ignored him for like 10 days. <laughs> And then, just out of the blue, they suddenly summoned him to, like, Nintendo of Japan's headquarters. And he was presented in front of Hiroshi Yamauchi, the president of Nintendo. And he's like, all right, give us your pitch. Now, this pitch sounds weird as hell, as Joffield would later describe it. Quote, the producer who described the Super Mario Brothers game as a food chain game, it tells us we're all going to be someone's dinner, end quote, was determined not to be simple kids fantasy. Quote, one of the things I said to Yamauchi was, Look, we're not going to do a sweet little lovey-dovey sort of story. It's got to have an edge to it. End quote. So, a food chain game? What? I don't know what that means. <laughs> the doggy dog world in the world of Super Mario Brothers. I, yeah, and, 
why does it have to have an edge to it? Mario is edgeless. <laughs> we are gonna get into why in a bit. Uh, okay. In a way that I don't really think they understand who was playing video games at the time. Like, they're like, well, no, adults play video games. We need to make it for adults. Like, you're not wrong, but <laughs> the vast majority of people playing games at that point were kids. But still, this somehow is going to work, Alex. I have no idea how, but it's going to work. And when Yamauchi asked Joffy why they should even bother with them, Joffy just told them they'd be able to maintain greater control over the film if they went with them rather than, say, Paramount or Disney or whatever. Mm-hmm. So soon after, Nintendo's going to sell them the rights to, for, uh, to Joffy for $2 million, which is, seems like an absolute pittance, given that all that Joffy appeared to offer them was creative control. Right. Now, it turns out there was a, he actually offered more than that. And what I mean by that is because Nintendo's not going to exercise any sort of creative control over this project, which is going right. to be a big reason why there's an issue with this. Yes. They don't care about that aspect at all. But what Joffy did offer them was full merchandising rights. Basically, they could take all the merchandising profits from the film, which is an insane thing to bargain away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and something that undoubtedly no other studio would dare to offer up. Definitely, yeah. So yeah, for them, it's like, well, there's literally zero risk for us in this then. I mean, if this movie flops, okay, we don't get our merchandising rights, but mm -hmm. I mean, we're all we did was, just, but we still get the pocket $2 million. And if it's incredibly successful, then we're going to be, it's going to be very lucrative for us. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this, of course, Nintendo's going to jump on this. Regardless though, Joffy now has his license. And he has at this point, like left Hollywood, a kind of like a bit stunned as a whole, because mm -hmm. this relatively unknown production company has somehow managed to obtain what was at the time, the hottest media license around, or right. I guess arguably nowadays, still the hottest uh, media yeah, license. I would say so. <laughs> Amazing how that's worked out. With that, Joffy was able to raise a significant amount of money to help fund the project, and he immediately got to uh, securing a cast and crew for this. So they immediately got a director in the form of Greg Beeman. Uh, we're not going to talk about Greg for very long because he's not going to be here for very long. But <laughs> he had recently seen success with the film License to Drive and had previously been known for the... Um, the TV movie produced by the Walt Disney Corporation, The Richest Cat in the World, a movie about people trying to murder a talking cat. <laughs> there was more than one movie like that the, in those days. The 80s and 90s were lousy with dogs and cats getting inheritances and then people trying to comedically <laughs> murder said animals. In fact, I think Disney did too. If I remember correctly, there was one that did involve a dog, and the yeah. dog was like had some scenes where he's played by a man in a dog suit. And there's literally a point where <laughs> there's like a regular dog. And there's a scene where from behind the dog just stands up and punches a person is <laughs> amazing. I forget what the name of it is, but it's absolutely oh, amazing. Oh man. Cinema has become so bland. It really has, man. Oh, it was so much better back then. Now, Beeman is going to be the first indication that this is going to be a troubled production. Because once again, he's going to be almost immediately dropped from the project after his most recent movie, the Terry Garr and John Lovitz starring film Mom and Dad Save the World, comes out and is an immense flop, uh, earning $2 million off a budget of $14 million. So Oof. massive, massive flop. Yeah. So this immediately makes 
everyone nervous. And more importantly, it makes nearly every potential distributor of the film, which Joffy mm-hmm. still does not have one of those, Ooh. makes them nervous. So they, Joffy's like, okay, we got to replace him and get somebody else in. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the thing, though. Joffy's course correction is going to somehow make even less sense than going with Beeman. <laughs> so Beeman's good. Not Beeman. Uh, Joffy's going to go and try to lure quite a few people into this role. Uh, first, he's going to try to lure Harold Ramis to direct. But uh, Ramis, who's actually a fan of the Super Mario Brothers video game, uh, is going to be very tempted by this, but he's going to turn it down to go on and direct instead Groundhog Day. Okay, fair move. Fair move. Going to work out great for him. Yep. So he's at. Next, they're going to try to lure in Danny DeVito to not only direct, but also play the lead character of Mario as well. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this would have obviously been amazing. It would have. That would have been the ideal timeline. It would have been, which is why that didn't happen. Right. Can't have it too good. (laughs) Fun thing about Danny DeVito is that um, he's often been compared to Bob Hoskins, and Bob Hoskins Mm. once joked that they ever did, like, a biographical picture of his life that he would want Danny DeVito to play him. So, (laughs) lovely that he's here. Yeah. (laughs) So, running out of options... Roland Joffe is going to turn to not one director, but two directors. A co-director team of Rocky Morton and Annabelle Jenkin. Jenkel, I'm sorry. Uh, who agreed to do this film. Uh, have you referred to Morton, heard of uh, Morton and Jenkel before? Uh, only for the Super Mario Brothers movie. Yeah, that's fair. I'm going to say that they actually have done some good work in the past and work that I'm almost certain you've heard of. Okay, fair enough. So Morton and Jenkel are a kind of they're domestic partners, a husband mm-hmm. and wife duo, essentially, uh, that are British film directors who met while working for the UK based film company Cucumber Studios. Uh, they're basically primarily was were there to make various music videos for acts such as Rush and Elvis Costello. OK, uh, it was shortly after this that they became once again domestic partners and together co-created. And I'm sure you've heard of this Max Headroom. Yes, okay. Yeah. For those of you unaware, Max Headroom is amazing. Oh, this this makes a whole lot of sense. It makes every bit of sense in the world. <laughs> okay. So they, they have a they have a thing that they like to do. Yes, they do. So for those of you who are not aware, Max Headroom is a character portrayed by actor Matt Fewer that through special effects, prosthetics, and even a plastic molded suit that is supposed to like look artificial. Uh, they basically portray this character as a CGI man, an artificial intelligence that's trying to mimic a TV presenter who doesn't understand how humans act, and is just <laughs> glitching out all the time. And like, apparently it was really, really successful at fooling people and thinking, oh, he's actually a computer man and not just an actor on screen mm. with prosthetics on. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, does he is amazing. The the uncanniness is through the roof. It really is. Like they get down to like just like this like a record skipping messed up CD and like a PlayStation like level mm-hmm. of like, yeah, this is not running correctly. Mm-hmm. Making inappropriate jokes and like laughing at the wrong moments and whatnot. It's so good. It's great. Chat GPT wishes it could be as awkward as Max Headroom. Classic Canadian television? Um I think technically it premiered on Canadian television. No, it was it. No, this is British. It, it, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that was weird. For some reason, it was, it always was in my head as a Canadian TV show. Yeah. No, it got to start on British television, but then there wasn't <laughs> a sitcom on ABC called Max Headroom okay. Show. Yeah. Hmm. So 
yeah, this is all done in free, like a front of green screen, and it's trippy then, and it's still weird now. Like, look at Max Headroom. He's wonderful. Yeah. So Max Headroom is easily going to be their most successful thing, and part of that is because in 1985, they're going to take a break to have children and move to Los Angeles. And around 1988, they're going to get back into the business of directing films. Uh, first almost being attached to the movie Child's Play, the movie featuring the murderous doll Chucky, which uh, that would have been great. Yep. Uh, before doing the movie DOA, which is a modest success of uh, starring Randy Quaid. And so it seemed like there would at least be a safe bet. Like they've at least done one Hollywood production that maybe wasn't the biggest thing in the world, but they did it well and it was successful. So they went with them and they went, all right, great. And I hope that their um, idea for this movie of like a darker Mario script, which once again, we'll get into a little bit here in a second, mm-hmm. kind of j- jived with what Jothy was trying to do. So it seemed like a good match. Right. So speaking of that, now it's time to get into how the actual script came together for this project. Uh, a project that is supposed to be about a game series made for kids, except it's going to be for kids as directed by the people who made Max Headroom and produced by the guy whose most famous film was about the Cambodian genocide. <laughs> yeah, someone probably should have taken a step back at some point and went, is this, is this the tone we want? Yeah, right? Like, I'm not... I'm just not really sure about this one. You know, maybe we should get somebody who's been involved in children's movies. Or- yeah, like when when you say, oh, hey, the studio that made the Minions is making the Mario movie. You go, yeah, okay. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah but it would have been like, um, it would have been like if they got like Christopher Nolan to do that movie or mm-hmm. something like that. It's like, well, he does make some like really crazy trippy movies. So, um, um yeah, sure. All right. Mario goes to space. Yeah, no, fine. Mario Galaxy was like that. Yeah, whatever, dude. Yeah, it, it would have been it. It doesn't make sense here. Like, it didn't make sense at the time. It doesn't make sense now. No. So on top of all these problems was the simple fact that at this point, as we kind of already talked about, there wasn't a whole lot of source material to go off of. Right. Now, there's a story about how Morton and Jenkel played the original Super Mario Brothers for research, but they just weren't really into it or video games in general. And this was actually, this quote's often held up as an example of why they weren't right for the project. But it's also like, well, yeah, what do you expect them to do with that? Right. There's not much there. Yeah. It's a 44-kilobyte it's a game that literally recycles a couple of stages. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. yeah, no, there's not much you could do there. So this is going to turn out to be a difficult project to adapt to the big screen. Even though Nintendo wasn't interested in maintaining creative control, and thus the screenwriters had Clark launch to do kind of whatever they wanted right now the good news is that right away it seems like joffy had secured the best possible screenwriter he could find barry morrow now i know you haven't heard of morrow but i know you've heard of the film that he's written mm-hmm. pretty much the only real major film he's written and uh that's because he by the time he's hired he had just got done winning the academy award for the film rain man uh yeah a Rain Man, for those of you who don't know, is a movie about a con man taking a road trip with his estranged and heavily autistic and savant brother and learning to reconnect with him. Again, a great movie, but what is the tissue that connects this to the Super Mario Brothers? <laughs> right? Exactly. It's, yeah, once again, you have a, somebody who did like this hard, like this really like gripping, like dramatic movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like it's about it dude he gets a mushroom he grows big <laughs> what are we doing <laughs> there's a giant turtle he breathes fire <laughs> yeah it's it's insane it's insane to decided to go with this 
Now, it's going to get even weirder because Morrow's script, uh, completed before Morton and Jenkel were even hired, uh, you're going to love this, by the way. It, mm, it, centers, oh yeah. it centers around a gruffer version of Mario going on a road trip with his awkward yet savant brother, Luigi. Well, uh, you can't... You... <laughs> You can't just actually make Rain Man again, but with hats. <laughs> you know, funnily enough, everyone else agreed. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody was pleased by this, and the script was derisively called Drain Man as a result, because insults were so much yeah. easier back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> now, Moro tried to defend the script by saying it was like a study of contrast, similar to something like Laurel and Hardy or Abbott and Costello. Which everyone's like, what? No. What? No no one's going to get that. <laughs> no one's going to get that. So yeah, nobody bought it. And so he's not going to last long on the project. And to be fair, tomorrow, nobody's going to last long on this project that's going to write for this. True. <laughs> um, uh, because like, basically, producer, director, and later distributors are all going to have different points in the production and be like, okay, we need to go in a different direction with this story. Yeah, no, you're just not going to work out. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is where we get into the part where we talk about pretty much everybody who's ever been involved writing this movie. It's a long one. So next, they're going to turn to screenwriters Jim Genuin and Tom S. Parker. Uh, this is going to be after uh, Morton and Jenkel are hired onto the project. Okay. Uh, they are frequent collaborators uh, who are at this point in the career are relatively new to Big Butch's screenwriting. And they're going to produce a script that's called the Wizard of Oz script. Largely due to the fact that Genuine noted that when coming up with their dash shit, he said, quote, so right away we knew that the way to do this was to essentially have a journey into the world, not unlike the Wizard of Oz. Which, okay. yeah, no, makes sense. Yeah, sure. He would later elaborate the plan on satirizing many fairy tale cliches with an emotional through line of brothers forming a bond. Solid, honestly, yes. Yeah, yeah, that can work. Yeah. Problem is, is that this was a relatively lighthearted script which was at odds with Jothi, Morton, and Jankel, who wanted a darker tone to their movie. Mm. Similar to what was found in a 1989 Batman movie or the 1990 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. Yeah, that was kind of the style at the time, huh? It kind of was. And this movie is like, it is the most, like, we just saw 1989 Batman and we decided mm. what if we just copy that. Well, yeah. So Morton and Jankel are going to get hired onto this project. They're going to see this script and they're going to be like, no, no, you got to rewrite this. And they're going to try to rewrite it, but it's not going to be to their liking. So they're just going to dump them for a new set of writers. Okay. Which leads to the hiring of Parker Bennett and Terry Runney. Now, this is a move that's going to cost the film $10 million because uh, a ton of pre-production had already went into making the script work on the film, which means props were made, costumes were made, all this sort of stuff that now just had to be thrown out. Shouldn't you get sign-off on the script before you start making stuff for it? Well, they did get sign-off from Joffy. He was like, eh, fine, whatever. But then Morton and Jankel came in and said, no, we want creative control. And Joffy went, okay, sure, whatever. And then he looked and went, oh, this is garbage. No, we want something darker. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yep. So that's how we get to Bennett and Runty being hired. Uh, Parker Bennett and Terry Runty are going to work through a couple of scripts. But the one that is going to get, they're going to get to is something called the Ghostbuster script. Uh, this is largely because they're going to take a ton of inspirations from Ghostbusters. <laughs> this is, I'm seeing a very concerning trend, which is every script is, what if we did this, but with hats? Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's gonna Think about, like, all the different script treatments that are through this are all going to have different names to them, like the Ghostbusters uh -huh. script, the Die Hard script, the Mad Max script, because they're all going to feature, like, one little piece in them that's like, 
oh, there's a big desert car chase scene with like junked out cars, like it's Mad Max, for instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. And um, I, I guess this would be a good time to shout out the website smbmovie.com, which is actually has all of these scripts, or the vast majority of them anyways. The, the Drain Man wow. script, sadly, is not mm-hmm. on there. But they actually have them on there and like go into detail about what their processes were and everything. Very, very comprehensive. And uh, mm. this podcast actually could not have been, been done without them. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. To actually like get to see what what the scripts were going to be. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's it's absolutely cool. And um yeah, there's a lot of like also like pre-production work that's just been saved and cata- like cataloged on that website as well. Right. I, I assume that you didn't go through in-depth reads of any of them. No. But did any of them seem better than what we got? I think the Wizard of Oz script had maybe the best promise to it all. Okay. Because yeah, it, that makes sense. Yeah, because it's like, well, I mean, it's supposed to be for kids. This, You know, there are brothers. Mm-hmm. You know, let's, ex- let's explore that and let's just kind right. of just go along that route. Like, that mm-hmm. seems like the best possible way to do this. Right. But and whereas everything everyone else is just like, well, what if we can make it? What if we made it darker? Mm-hmm. What if we put strippers in the movie? It's like, <laughs> what if he didn't? <laughs> mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe don't. Yeah, maybe don't. So once again, this is gonna, so this script's going to take inspiration from Ghostbusters, uh, right down to Mario being a bit sleazy, but ultimately very confident, not unlike mm-hmm. Bill Murray's character from the same film. Mm-hmm. Now, almost immediately, this becomes a problem because as the script is being written, Bob Hoskins is given the lead role. And the older and far more likable actor obviously would not work for a character right. similar to Bill Murray's character of Peter Venkman from that film. Mm-hmm. So that's hastily rewritten. Inspiration from the setting is taken directly from the recently released Super Mario World, focusing on an alternate world filled with dinosaurs or human-dinosaur hybrids, among other little touches. This is probably the first script where a lot of those elements are going to survive to the final film, despite many rewrites. Mm. So if you want to say what's the origin for what ultimately ends up in the movie ends up being, it probably starts here. Unfortunately, the constant rewrites meant the script had trouble getting finished on time. And with the need to put the film into production and make their money back, they were also fired and replaced by mm. Dick Clement and Ian Lee. Oh boy, I'm going to mispronounce this. Ian Law Freneas. So Clement and Freneas are going to do a couple of script treatments over the course of about two months. And while they're not going to change a ton from what Bennett and Runty had already put together, they decided to go for more serious rather than comedic tone, as was the wishes of Joffe, Morton, and Wrinkle. Uh, it also featured a Mad Max-inspired death race through the desert, for reasons? Sure. That only partially survives to the film, and by partially surviving, I mean they're just in a desert at one point for no reason. <laughs> This final script, finished in March 1992, would be the script they're going to take forward to filming. So this is the one to go, okay, this is great. We're going to take this forward. Mm-hmm. So it only took five or six screenwriters, but now we have our script. For the actors and actresses, Joffe is going to assemble quite the crew. Like, this is a really star-studded uh, mm-hmm. cast, of starting with the lead actor. Mario's going to be played by Bob Hoskins, an incredibly curmudgeonly, yet somehow incredibly likable actor. Mm-hmm. Who is a um, he's a trained uh, theater actor uh, mm-hmm. who's best known for his performances on London's West End as part of the uh, Royal Shakespeare troupe, and who is best known for a wide range of roles such as J. Edgar Hoover and Oliver, Oliver Stone's Nixon, uh, George in the film Mona Lisa, and maybe most famously as Detective Eddie Elliott in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He's also one of the mo- best possible choices for Mario, or at least what Mario was mm-hmm. considered at the time. Mm-hmm. 
And he's also a consummate professional who's going to spot this production as being trouble from like a <laughs> mile away. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, for his brother, up-and-coming actor John Lequizama was selected for the role of Luigi. And for King Koopa himself, longtime film actor Dennis Hopper was selected. Uh, even the lesser-known actors were talents in their own right. Samantha Mathis, who plays Princess Daisy, was still very new to the business, but would go on to ha- and continues to have a very lengthy career in TV and movies. And Richard Edson, who plays Spike Koopa, has been in what seems to be nearly everything in the 90s. Mm. Even the narrator is Dan Castanella, a.k.a. Homer Simpson himself. It is an amazing set of talent, and it's all going to go to waste. Mm-hmm. So, with all that assembled, filming is set to begin at a cement factory in Wilmington, North Carolina. It seems like a kind of an odd place, but until you remember, it's the same factory that's been used in films such as Terminator 2 and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So like a very, okay. very big space that's solid right. filming. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also in a state where they can use non-unity labor as well, which is why everyone's filming in South go. Carolina at the time. Right. Yep. Or North Carolina. I'm sorry. Uh, the props and set pieces for Dino Hatton, the alternate world Manhattan, uh, most of the movie was going to take place in, were completed and being set up there. Screen tests were being done. And Joffe finally got a distributor for the film. One of Vista Pictures, which you haven't heard, if you haven't heard of them, they're a subsidiary of Disney. Famously hands off Disney. Mm-hmm. So, two weeks before production is to begin, people from Disney show up on set and see what's going on with this ostensibly kids movie and see that it's full of weird strippers and scary dino people. <laughs> Alex, they flip out. Yeah, yeah. You know what? Honestly... It was probably past due. Yeah. yeah Someone probably should have been flipping out a while ago. They probably should have been. And like normally like Disney meddling is something I'm like, oh, you really don't have to meddle on this. This is the mm-hmm. one time I'm like, no, justified. 100% justified. Yeah. yeah. There should have been more meddling. There, have, there should have been more meddling. So upon seeing the script themselves, they're like, this is unacceptable. This needs to be rewritten. Otherwise, you're not getting this distribution deal. We're going to back out. Mm-hmm. which would have been a death knell for the movie. Right. So because of that, Roland Joffe is like, all right, we need to bring in another set of writers. And so he does. So we're now on to our I believe, sixth and seventh screenwriters at this point. Could they not have gotten the same screenwriters to try and rewrite it? <laughs> Funny thing. <laughs> they will, but in the stupidest way possible. Oh, boy. We'll get to that at literally the end of this episode. So they bring in Ed Solomon and Ryan Rowe for this set of rewrites. So Solomon is mostly a comedy writer and also relatively new in the industry. But in in Mm a short time, he has actually written Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and coincidentally, Mom and Dad Save the World. Uh, Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, they ignore that one. Uh, He would also wind up uh, writing Men in Black in the future. And now you see me. So, you know, dude knows how to write a script, it seems. Yeah, sure. But in the meantime, it's up to him and Ryan Rowe to make a much lighter movie, one that's called the Disney Princess script. Not only because <laughs> of the streamlined nature of the script, but also because the focus is shifted to more traditional romantic adventure. Uh, mm. This one actually is supposed to culminate in a double wedding between Luigi and Princess Daisy and Mario and another character named Daniela. Uh, Disney was pretty satisfied, but you know who wasn't, Alex? <laughs> Nintendo, maybe? Oh, Nintendo doesn't doesn't care about this at all. <laughs> it is so wild that Nintendo's not at all involved. Given what in we any know, yeah. Given what we know about Nintendo nowadays, like we're talking about how Disney is fam- famously hands-on. Oh my God, Nintendo puts mm. them at sh- puts them to shame. Yeah. Here they're just like, man, you just do whatever. We don't care. Whatever. 
We're making give us that merchandising. We're making pilot wings over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now the people who weren't satisfied were literally everyone else, and that includes uh, cast, crew, directors, everyone. Great. So the actors and actresses, particularly Bob Hoskins and Dennis Hopper, were absolutely incensed because they showed up on the day of shooting to find that many of their lines were now suddenly changed. Great, yep. Which, can't blame them. Nope. Always a rough experience. Always is. Now, Rocky Morton and Annabelle Jankel, the directors, were even more upset, as they weren't even consulted on the changes beforehand. (sighs) Yeah, and the big reason why they even signed on to this project in the first place is like, oh, you will have creative control. So seeing this, they're like, well, what the hell is this? And they almost quit the project outright. Now, they didn't, which is going to be a mistake for them. (laughs) And instead, they decide to stay on the project in an attempt to reclaim their vision for the movie. A fact that appears to have been doomed from the beginning, as this Wire yeah. article states. Yeah. So, this Wire article states, quote, The whole experience was a nightmare. Uh, this is from Morton. Uh, Morton believes the studio executives who visited the cement factory weren't happy with a tone by, set by the screenplay. Audiences would expect Mario to be a cute family movie. The problem was that it was too late in the day to repurpose the whole project. Instead, the production was caught between its original vision and a lot of last-minute tinkering. The producers decided to take on board the comments of the studio and change the material to accommodate the comments that were coming back from the studios, which was, this was supposed to be a kids' movie, says the co-director. They panicked. A week before principal photography, with the cast about to arrive in the sets built, a new screenplay was commissioned by Ed Sullivan, who co-wrote Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. When Morton called the writer to discuss the new draft, he was reprimanded. By Joffe, specifically. Quote, The producers found out I made the call, and they forbade me to speak to the writer. The writer who was going to write the script, I had to direct. End quote. Not the first time that Joffe is going to kind of throw his weight around in this, by the way. Right, yeah. So, yeah. Despite not being told to talk to their own writer for some reason, uh, Morton and Janko are now going to work closely with Solomon. And Solomon is going to put in a lot of work uh, doing a ton of rewrites that are literally going to mm-hmm. happen daily. Right. Uh, these rewrites, done on pieces of colored paper, would often be distributed <laughs> to the actors and actresses the day of shooting, sometimes as they walked on set. Oh, God. Right? Yeah. Now, this was Morton and Jenkel attempting to reinsert their vision of a darker movie back into a script. But what it results in is not, it's just like a log- illogical mess of events being placed back into the film. As- right. And it also is going to result in a bunch of actors who are just constantly upset all the time. Uh, this this doesn't feel like the hill to die on for your vision. It really doesn't. Yeah. Like, j- just quit. Just quit. Mm-hmm. And had, Take the vision elsewhere. And that's the thing. Had they quit, they probably would still have had careers in Hollywood, as yeah, we'll find out. Yeah, probably. Yeah, they decided to double down, and it is the worst possible time to double down. Because, yeah, there's nothing going to be saving this at this point. Right. Yeah, at this point, you just have, like, a clash of egos and people striving for creative control Mm. versus a Disney effectively being like, we need our kids' movie. Yeah, yeah. And and just cast and crew caught in the middle of it. Yeah, it is this really weird three-headed hydra of, yeah, people who, as you mentioned, are really interesting creative control. Yeah. With the directors wanting control, Joffy wanting control, and Disney wanting control. And the problem is, is that 
I mean, you've seen this happen at, like, Hollywood all the time. Like, you know, mm-hmm. Spielberg talks about having to push back against uh, distributors and producers and whatnot. Right. And he would usually win out because he's just a very strong personality who's very proven, mm-hmm. which Morton and Jinkle don't quite have that. So they can, they right. have to kind of be, like, weirdly underhanded about it in order to get their mm-hmm. get their vision out front. Something that the actors and actresses are going to hate and how they're all going to react to this is going to be different. And I want to focus on three different people for this. The first person I want to focus on is Bob Hoskins. Now, as mentioned previously, Hoskins is a well-liked but curmudgeonly man who does not suffer a fool lightly. Mm-hmm. Now, while he was very unhappy with the production overall, he had, at first was not outright trashing the production or anything. He later definitely will, but not mm. at first. Right. He tries to be professional about it. He does. So he tries to treat it like a job, go and read some lines, and then go home to a mansion he had rented on the beach. And because of that, he kind of barely interacted with the, like, cast and crew outside of this. Like, literally clocked mm. in, clocked out, left. Right. Now, that being said, Richard Edson, who we're going to talk about a little bit later and play Spike Hoopa in this, later describes, quote, Edson struck up friendships with others working on the film during the production. And this is now Edson speaking. We would hang out a lot and get stoned. Bob Hoskins would never hang <laughs> out, though. <laughs> He had a mansion somewhere down the beach. But then one night, we were talking about getting high, and Bob was like, you guys have pot? You've been smoking reefer? And we're like, yeah. And he yelled, why didn't you tell me? I've been sitting alone in my mansion. <laughs> we really looked up to him, end quote. <laughs> it's great. And, like, it gets even better, because, like, as the production went on, the constant rewrites were just leaving, like, a lot of time on everyone's hands, because they would just stop mm. filming to rewrite a scene or whatever, or have right. a meeting. And so... While Hoskins was getting more and more frustrated with the direction the film was taken, he, alongside actress Fiona Shaw, would go would on occasion get the crew director to do readings of classical Shakespeare because both her, both him and Shaw were part of the Royal uh, Royal Shakespeare Company. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they would do readings of like Macbeth and The Tempest and whatnot. And this is once oh. again Edson talking. Well, mm-hmm. uh, the one other thing that we had a lot of time on our hands, and both Bob Hoskins and Fiona Shaw were trained at Royal Shakespeare. So we decided to do a reading of Macbeth. Yeah, it was real fun. I, I had no background in Shakespeare, so it was a lot of fun. Fiona and Bob would give us background, and we did it with dinner, and and Bob was staying at this, bread and, uh, this bed and breakfast, this old pre-Civil War mansion. Beautiful, beautiful mansion in downtown Wilmington, where he had the top floor of it. I think he had his assistant there with him. And so we would do it there in the hall and put candles and have dinner and then do the reading. And Bob and Fiona would just kind of give background to it. We actually feel like we're real actors instead of punching clocks at Super Mario Brothers, <laughs> end quote. Which is nice. I I wanted to include that yeah. particular story because this is a negative story overall. Yeah. But, but yeah, it's like they, they had that sort of time to do something they were passionate about. Yeah, yeah, and there's just something really cool about, yeah, Bob Hoskins and Fiona Shaw getting everyone together and being like, hey, let's go over this classical play, let's explain the background about this, and mm-hmm. people being like, yeah, we actually feel like real actress for once, this is great. <laughs> yeah, so I want to include this because the next uh, next couple of stories are going to be pretty darn negative. Mm-hmm. Oh, the first uh, is from Richard Edson. Uh, Edson's one that's pretty short. Uh, he, alongside um, one of his co-stars, uh, who played basically these like this like bumbling duo that works for King Koopa. Basically, they looked at the lines one day and said, "Man, our lines just suck." And so they just on set just decided to improvise them, and just like mm-hmm. we're like we're just gonna just say whatever. And the directors were just like, "Oh, that's kind of nice. Uh, just go ahead and just do that from now on." And they're like, "What? Well, okay, sure, whatever." 
Okay. So practically every line they have in the movie, including like an extended hip hop sequence, are just them improvising, which is kind of insane when you think about it. A little bit, yep. Because they're the only ones doing that. Finally, uh, the this other story is maybe the maybe the darkest one of them. It, it dark maybe is maybe the incorrect, but it is definitely the meanest. Mm-hmm. Oh, but first, actually, uh, we do need to talk a little bit more about Hoskins as well because. Uh, these rewrites that were constantly happened were taking a toll on Hoskins, as his article mm. from The Guardian states, quote, All these rewrites get frustrating, so I don't do too much research, Hoskins said. My seven-year-old son is quite depressed about me playing Mario. He knows I can't even program a VCR, let alone play the game. How do I prepare for the role? I'm the right <laughs> shape. I got a mustache. End quote. <laughs> like was John Leguizamo later would note that he and Hoskins would often drink whiskey in between takes. <laughs> And notes that a later stunt where Hoskins would break his finger while driving was likely caused by this. Mm. Probably a lot of accidents that would happen to Hoskins were probably as a result of drinking whiskey because he's going to break mm-hmm. a finger. He's going to get stabbed a couple of times. Mm. Uh, he's going to get electrocuted a couple of times. Uh, so <laughs> a lot of accidents are going to happen to the poor man. Yeah. Now, let's flip over to Dennis Hopper. He's the final one we're going to talk about regarding this. Mm. He who's also more than happy. He's a man who's also more than happy to call you an idiot to your face and mm-hmm. see how you would react. Uh, right. Also, unlike everyone else, he's also an accomplished film director at this point. Mm. So in one particular script change, Hopper, who's already dressed in heavy makeup and prosthetics in sweltering Carolina heat, mind you. Right. Uh, he got a script change. Uh, and when he walked on set, he was incredibly upset about this, just mumbling to himself. And then either Morton or Jankel asks him, hey, what's wrong? This results him in just exploding, telling them they are so unprofessional. He's never seen anything like this. And how dare you rewrite my lines? They're shit. It's shit. And the fact you do it without asking me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. This outburst went on for 45 minutes. Oh, man. While everyone looked on in amazement and the director has just stood there in silence. Eventually, somebody just says, hey, how about we go get lunch? <laughs> which dennis hopper agrees to but all this results is now everyone eating lunch while dennis hopper screams at the directors for a further two hours except now that he's also screaming at roland joffy as well uh. finally morton and jingle just say quote what do you want to do do you want us to go back to the original lines do you want to write them to yourself we'll do what you want and dennis calms down and says fine i'll just do the lines as written all of that just to finally get back to the script changes and just reading out what's on there. Right. The whole thing lasted three and a half hours, and it sounds so uncomfortable. It, yeah. The, uh, mm-hmm. uh, poison. <laughs> Absolutely. But, like, I get, I, I totally sympathize with Dennis on, on yeah. this. It's like, it's an incredibly frustrating situation mm-hmm. that just happens over and over, and you try to be professional about it, you try to roll with it. Mm-hmm. But the result of that is just that it it builds up until it finally explodes. And then you finally get to the point of like, okay, okay, we understand. And you've said everything that's on your mind repeatedly. What do you want to do about it? Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, there's nothing to do about it. It's- it just sucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it sounded like maybe this is just had built up over time. He's just like, I just need to get it out of me. Right. Yeah. And like, Dennis Hopper is famously a legendary asshole. Mm, like yep. to the point that he was nearly drummed out of 70s Hollywood uh, <laughs> between that and substance abuse problems before other legendary right. asshole John Wayne saved his career 
<laughs> so the, the, him doing this is definitely not out of character, but sometimes sure. sometimes being a jerk is a little justified. Yeah. Now, for directors Morton and Jankel, this was just the tip of the iceberg when it came to their problems they're going to face with the movie. After almost immediately earning the ire of their two biggest actors with last-minute script changes, the couple reportedly were involved in like the most unimportant minutiae of the movie, uh, resulting in increased tension between them and producer Roland Joffrey. Like, mm. They are going to hate each other by the end of this. Right. In one such uh, citation, Morton and Jankel were locked in a meeting with cast members over a scene that was just 11 lines long. And apparently this meeting was going on for like hours as far as how to handle mm. this. Mm-hmm. Joffe, whose film was already well behind and over budget, uh, was just set off by this. And he dragged Morton and Jankel back to the trailer and berated them. Something that, according to the directors, happened on a near nightly basis. And mm. this is the directors talking now, quote, we were told we were going to be fired. We were doing a terrible job. Every night we were told this. We were told we were behind, spending too much money. The budget was hemorrhaging, and the whole thing was disaster, end quote. Now, that obviously sounds bad, but Hoskins was unsparing and uncaring about this in his own thoughts on it, noting years later that, quote, it was a fucking nightmare. The whole experience <laughs> was a nightmare. It had a husband and wife team directing whose arrogance has been mistaken for talent. After so many weeks, their own agent told them to get off the set. Fucking nightmare. Fucking idiots. End quote. Jesus. Yeah. Once again, if Bob Hoskins does not like you, he's going to be unflinching about it. Yeah. Yeah. Even Samantha Mathis, who plays Daisy in the film and has previously expressed a fondness for the duo, had this to say about them in the movie. Quote, I don't think it's any secret that it was a troubleshoot, she, she says. I would say Bob didn't suffer fools gladly. He was an artist. He could see the chaos swirling around the set and a lack of clarity. I think it's a rare thing to have two people directing a movie together well. I certainly haven't experienced it. The production just took a life of its own, end quote. And that's probably the most positive thing you will see about mm -hmm. any person say about the, the director and the production of this movie at large. So that's kind right. of telling. Yeah. Now, probably the lowest point for them was that one day, Morton, in a fit of rage and stress, threw a cup of hot coffee on an extra, as reported by actor John Leguizamo. Now, this is disputed. Morton disputes this by saying uh, in a later interview that one of the extras wasn't dirty enough for the scene. He was supposed to be covered in mud. So in attempt to, and they're, they're trying to put mud on him, but it's just sliding off. So in an attempt to mm. add additional brown to their costume, he got their consent to put warm coffee on them. However, it's too warm and it ended up hurting the extra. Regardless, it was another sign that this production was out of control. Right. Now, eventually, Joffe's going to have enough of this, and with two leaks left on the shoot, Morn and Jankel are relieved of the duty. They are just told, go home. You're done. Mm -hmm. He's going to now take over. This is going to now get us our final script change, because, you see, <laughs> funny thing about this, um, it, it turns out that a couple of... Uh, of writers previously associated with the film had just been invited to set that day and were just hanging out. Uh-huh. Yeah, so uh, Bennett and Runty, uh, the ones who worked on the Ghostbusters strip, were just uh, were just hanging out there and, they, and Joffe said to them and said, hey, we need you to do some rewrites. So they were hired. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, they were just hired on the spot and just told, hey, listen, man, can you get in there and rewrite these things? You gotta save this movie. And they're like, shit, okay. Uh, okay. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, so they did their best, but cutting out a big climatic fight on the Brooklyn Bridge, cutting out the Mad Max-inspired uh, desert race scene, 
But really, there's nothing he could possibly do with this film at this point. Right. Even with considerable amount of editing, they only got this film down to roughly about 110 minutes, I would like to say. 104 minutes. God. Yeah, they cut out like over 20 minutes worth of stuff in this, and it still feels like a bloated mess. <laughs> like, it's very clear that nothing was going to save this. Mm-hmm. But regardless, they are going to go ahead and finish up the movie. And once they did and got it out there, it ended up being one of the biggest flops of the year. Now, part of this is because just the lead up to the movie already had incredibly bad press. Um, a Hollywood reporter was invited out to tour the set uh, about, I think it was like four weeks before shooting finished. And it basically just involved uh, Bob Hoskins and Dennis Hopper talking to him and talking about how the, the set was a complete chaotic nightmare and nobody knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. So needless to say, that generated a ton of bad press. Uh, and I believe right. I believe the uh, magazine was called The Hollywood Calendar, which was a very popular magazine at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, as Morton and Jake Gold described it, they basically said that this would ruin their careers because everyone was reading it and just uh, calls would dry up after this film. Right. It should be noted that their talent agency, CAA, would actually drop them completely and Oof. they could not get another agent. Like, Oof. this absolutely destroyed them, this article and this film. And so, with that already primed, critics were honestly surprisingly nice to the film. <laughs> While most agreed it was a bad movie, Hoskins and Lekwazamo's acting was praised, and the visual effects and spectacle was praised at the time. Mm. Sure. However, the writing and generally confusing composition of the movie was absolutely slagged. People did not like that part. Mm. And the movie going public, for the most part, ignored the movie, possibly due to the bad press already generated, and possibly due to the bad, uh, uh, the, the bad reviews. Regardless, nobody went and watched this movie. Nintendo executives, who were flown out from Kyoto to actually sit in on the screening, basically left in silence, and <laughs> basically from that day forward, resolved to assume full creative control of all their properties. <laughs> and the movie itself was destined to be forgotten. But Alex, here's like the one shining ray of hope about this. Mm. This film wasn't forgotten. Mm-hmm. This film has developed like a dedicated fan following. A dedicated fan site that we've already talked about, smbmovie.com, was launched in 2007 uh, as titled as the Super Mario Brothers The Movie Archive, which mm. is maybe one of the largest repositories of pre-production work you could find on the movie, including interviews with literally everyone, some that they conducted themselves. In 2013, a sequel webcomic was produced with the help of one of the original screenwriters, Parker Bennett, that explored a possible sequel where they go back and uh, into the dino land and fight Wart. You know? Huh. Yeah. Uh, in 2021, film restorationist found an early VHS work print, and through the efforts of restorationist Garrett Gilchrist, produced the Morton Jankel cut, consisting of an additional 20 minutes of footage that does legitimately help out the movie, and was also thought lost to time. On the eve of the release of the most recent Mario movie, the original film was screened at a theater owned by Quentin Tarantino, and attended <laughs> by Morton and Jankel, in what appears to have been kind of an exorcism for them. As they watched for maybe one of the first times, people legitimately enjoyed their movie. Like, Mm. the way they had talked about it up until this point was almost like they were experiencing trauma. Right. Which, given what they went through, probably was traumatic. Yeah, understandable. Mm -hmm. Upon seeing the reaction to their movie, one they dubbed a black mark on their careers. They stated, quote, My thought was that there were going to be 10 or 20 people there, Morton tells Variety. But it was jam-packed. There were people queuing up around the block for extra tickets. 
During the film, Morton said the audience was laughing and clapping at all the right places. They weren't doing it ironically. It was genuine. And this is from Jankel. It was like being at a film festival, Jankel adds, amazed at the dozens of fans approaching her for autographs and selfies. It was vindicating. Mm-hmm. It took 30 years of a bad feeling to be wiped out in one evening. End quote. And I think that's the best place to end this here. Yeah. You know, it's it's a movie that, as we'll get into when we talk about the plot in the next episode, it is not for nothing. It's not a boring movie. Mm-hmm. In every possible Certainly. aspect. Like, the Double Dragon movie, for instance, is a boring movie. <laughs> Mortal Kombat Annihilation is a boring movie. Mm-hmm. This is not boring. Mm-hmm. And you could definitely tell that there was a lot of work that was put into making something about this work. Right. Even if it ultimately ended up being a huge, colossal failure. Mm-hmm. Alex, how are you feeling? I, I feel good. It's It strikes me it's an interesting thing making movies like this. Mm-hmm. Because... It is good to be passionate about it. No one wants it. No one wants a passionless movie. Yeah. Those are boring. Mm. But there is a certain degree to which you kind of have to let go of it. Mm. Like if you if you try to mean if you try to hold too tightly to control of everything about it, it just becomes that kind of traumatic nightmare that can't move forward or become what it needs to be. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, just at some point you got to let go. Yeah, and yeah, this is definitely, that movie is going to reflect that through and through as we'll get into it next time as we talk Mm. about the plot of the Super Mario Brothers movie. Alex, do you have any final thoughts before we sign off? There is, I think, one party that has made maybe the biggest mistake with regards to this, Mm. and that is Nintendo. Mm. Not because they didn't express any control over their property during the making of this, but rather... You know, you were talking to me about how difficult it is to watch this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, because Nintendo has since effectively tried to erase its existence. Yeah. Um, and just deny any evidence of its existence. Mm. And in my mind, this stands in stark contrast with Capcom in the Street Fighter, Street Fighter movie, mm-hmm. a similarly lambasted and ridiculed movie of the time. Um, but one that if you ask any current Capcom employee about, they go, yeah, that movie's great. It makes us a ton of money mm-hmm. because the residuals for that movie continue even today. And the cult following that Street Fighter has gained has been nothing but returns for Capcom. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Capcom has been more than happy to just be like, I mean, Capcom does that with anything about their own products that's bad. Yeah. Like, look, everything they yeah. do with bad box art, Mega Man. Like, mm-hmm. they're more than happy to embrace the the darker and dumber aspects of their company in a way that Nintendo, is, which is very brand for it, is like, no, we got to scrub this. Right. Get rid of it. Yeah. But like, I don't know, man. People pay a lot of money for that stupid shit. Mm-hmm. They really, really do. Which, by the way... um. While you can't, you you can if you're in like non-United States actually find this on streaming services. In the United States, you mm. absolutely cannot, uh, not without paying some websites, uh, giving shady websites your credit card number, which I did not do. Right. Uh, you can still find it on DVD in some places, or you can also just watch the Morton Jenkel cut on archive.org. Mm-hmm. You you can also do that. It's um, it's VHS quality, so <laughs> it's not in the right film. Format. It's a four by three, but you still can watch it. You know what? I feel like VHS quality is the quality that this movie should be viewed in. Absolutely. Yeah. You're not missing anything from missing those widescreen shots. You're fine. It's fine. 
<laughs> but yeah, I think that's a good place to call this. Alex, thanks for uh, joining me on this as always. Of course. And if you want to listen to other episodes of Fallen Through Plotholes, go to ftp.podbean.com or search for Fallen Through Plotholes on your podcast service of choice. Uh, leave us a review and a follow. We do appreciate that. Makes us, uh, give us an idea that we're doing a good job. With that, take care, everybody. Take care.